0: Western culture has come into what some have called a transgender moment. The tipping point of this moment arrived June 1st, 2015, when a man named Bruce Jenner declared himself to be a woman named Caitlin. Now, Jenner was by no means the first to make such a declaration, but he was perhaps the most famous American to have done so to that point. In fact, Bruce Jenner had become a celebrity, an international celebrity for accomplishing what many would consider to be a distinctly masculine feat, winning the 1976 Olympic decathlon in record-breaking style. And yet, 39 years later, he identified as a woman, claiming, quote, I'm so happy after such a long struggle to be living my true self." Hollywood culture immediately embraced this pronouncement. Vanity Fair's cover featured Jenner in a dress, and Glamour magazine named him their Woman of the Year. Jenner's declaration was followed by a tidal wave of transgender-related headlines. Controversy surrounded men's and women's restrooms In early 2016, as you'll recall, several organizations and companies invited people to use the restroom of their gender identity rather than their birth sex. Later in 2016, the federal departments of justice and education teamed up to encourage schools to allow transgender students to use the restrooms and locker rooms of their choice. Increasingly, and some of you parents will know this, Increasingly, elementary-age students are taught about gender identity and invited to consider the possibility that their sex and gender do not match. And those children who indicate a transgender identity may receive puberty blockers at a young age followed by hormone treatments, permanently altering their physical makeup for the rest of their life. On the athletic field, transgender athletes began dominating women's sports, both those born biologically male and now identifying as female, and also those born biologically female but taking hormone treatments, which gave them a competitive advantage. And the controversy surrounding that continues to this day. Now, examples of trans-related controversies could be multiplied. I could go on and on this morning, but ultimately, this conversation around the subject of transgenderism is not about issues, it is about people. Even by conservative estimates, there are hundreds of thousands of people in our world today who identify as transgender. Now my goal today is to evaluate the claims of transgender ideology, and I'm going to spend a lot of time defining terms and talking about the worldview behind transgenderism and its consequences. But most importantly, I want to compare this worldview to a biblical view of gender, which is better grounded in reality, and I firmly believe it leads to a better hope and true joy. I want us to understand transgenderism in some related terms and definitions. The American Psychological Association defines transgender as an umbrella term for persons whose gender identity, gender expression, or behavior does not conform to that typically associated with the sex to which they were assigned at birth. By the way, that last phrase is significant the sex to which they were assigned at birth. Who's assigning this? Typically, transgenderism is seen in a male transitioning to female identity and expression or vice versa, a female transitioning to male identity and expression. Now, a transgender person who chooses to transition his or her body through medical interventions and surgeries is known as a transsexual. Some do not transition their bodies but may still express their gender through cross-dressing and other external markers. Still others would not identify as either male or female, but would identify as non-binary or queer, uh, rejecting the whole idea of what they would call the gender binary. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. Gender dysphoria is a, a, a genuine psychological condition. It's the distress experienced by those whose psychological or emotional gender identity differs from their biological sex. There are those who feel deep within themselves as if they are a male stuck in a female body or a female stuck in a male body. And today I want to to make a very important distinction between individuals who are confused and struggling with gender dysphoria on the one hand and the activists of transgender ideology on the other hand. You'll hear me today refer to those who are struggling with their identity, and you'll also hear me refer to those with an agenda who are encouraging a certain worldview and encouraging those in the first category and how they should think about their feelings. On the one hand are those who feel like a woman trapped in a man's body or vice versa. On the other hand are those who tell those individuals because of that, because of your feelings, you are A woman trapped in a man's body or you are a man trapped in a woman's body and by the way everybody else needs to affirm that as well that's the distinction i want to make as we try to walk this road of grace and truth now a foundational principle of transgender ideology is a historically recent distinction between the whole concepts of sex and gender In modern use, sex refers to male and female, while gender refers to masculine and feminine. You say, well, what's the difference? Well, sex is seen as an objective biological fact, while gender is portrayed as subjective, a psychological feeling. Now, even though we're making this distinction for the purpose of analyzing this subject, we'll we'll see later that, biblically speaking, those ideas of sex and gender are never separated. But this is essential to the transgender worldview, and this false distinction has led to the recently coined term cisgender, C-I-S, gender. Some of you have heard that before. Some of you, perhaps this is your first time hearing that. This is a term referring to those whose birth, sex, and their gender identity correspond. You say, well, that's pretty common, isn't it? It sure is. But it's a loaded term, which implies that a sex-gender match, although common, should not be taken as normative. That's the implication behind that term cisgender. Well, now that we've understood some of the basic concepts and definitions, I want to take a step back and talk about the worldview of transgenderism and some of the consequences that we see happening in real time around us. Number one, transgenderism contradicts biological science specifically the biological science of the human body. It's interesting that many who hold this worldview claim to love science, but frankly ignore things that are just observably true about the human body. This is particularly seen in the treatments and surgeries that are meant to change one's sex to match their gender identity. Now, I want us to understand without getting into detail, because we've got some young people here listening, so I'm not going to go into all the detail of these surgeries. But suffice to say that these sex change surgeries do not actually transition a person's sex, they are merely cosmetic mutilations. That's what they are. A male to female transsexual will never become pregnant, give birth, or nurse a child. It's impossible. A female to male transsexual will never father a child. Furthermore, bodies are male or female beyond their reproductive organs. Were you aware that over 70% of the total cells in your body, around 27.2 trillion cells in your body, contain either XY chromosomes or XX chromosomes? We are male or female, down to the molecular level, and sex change surgeries do not change that scientific fact. Moreover, there are distinct differences, on average, between male and female height, weight, and strength. Male and female brains are literally wired differently, and there are notable differences in things like vision and hearing sex reassignment surgery despite the term can change none of these things and hormone therapy although it can certainly adjust levels of testosterone and estrogen cannot alter the presence or absence of the y chromosome in those 27.2 trillion cells in one's body you say well this may be true mike but despite all this why not just let people go through with the fantasy? If they want to have their bodies mutilated and changed, why not just let them go through with that if it helps them feel better? Well, because it doesn't actually help them feel better. Study after study has taken place showing that there is no psychological improvement following these surgeries. And biologically speaking, physically speaking, sex change surgery is not harmless. It stunts growth. It causes infertility, and it appears likely to cause other physical challenges such as heart disease and cancer. Dr. Alan Branch writes, Perfectly healthy and functioning urological and reproductive organs are destroyed, removed, and irreversibly transformed and damaged. And aside from being profoundly anti-science, this truly is hateful to people. Why? Because many people have gone through these sex change surgeries and later regretted it. It's called detransitioning. Those who felt at one time as if they were a man stuck in a woman's body or vice versa, went through the hormones, went through even the sex change surgery, later in their life regret it, but there's no going back. They are scarred for life. The testimonies are out there. You won't find them on a Google search and you won't see the books listed on Amazon. But there are many, many testimonies of people who deeply regret having gone through such surgeries. So you say, why then would transgenderism advocates promote such damage to the body? Well, because of number two, transgenderism promotes a disconnect between the mind and the body. A disconnect between the mind and body and the body, an assumption that they are often not working in harmony. Now, this is really an updated version of the ancient heresy of Gnosticism. I don't have time to explain to you today everything that Gnosticism was about, but one of the key features of Gnosticism is to see everything physical, material, as bad, and everything invisible, immaterial, as good. Good. Now, this is in contrast with a Christian view that sees the human being as an embodied soul, the body and the spirit forming an integrated unity. I want us to participate in a little bit of an experiment together. Wherever you are, whether here in this room or watching online, I want you to take your hand and I want you to point up to the ceiling, okay? Just go ahead and do that real quick for me if you would. Everyone point up to the ceiling. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Did you point to the ceiling or did your body point to the ceiling? It's a false distinction, isn't it? Your mind and your body are continually working together and to speak as if there's a breakdown, two different agendas, is simply a false way to view the world. This is why often when you are sick, it affects your your mood because your mind and body are integrated. This is why sometimes you get stressed about life and it physically gives you a headache or actually causes you to become sick. Have you ever experienced this? It's because the mind and body are an integrated unity. This is why death is seen in scripture as an enemy, because it is the separation of the soul from the body. This is why we look forward to glorified resurrection bodies. We don't plan on being disembodied spirits in eternity. Jesus will provide for us a glorified resurrection body. We look forward to this because the human being is an embodied soul, essentially a unity. But the transgenderist worldview, in the words of Dr. Nancy Piercy, is a profoundly fragmenting dualism that separates body and person. She provides as an example of this a student resource called the Gender Unicorn. This is a colorful graphic, it is created for children, and it's meant to illustrate five different dimensions of gender and sexuality within each person gender identity, gender expression sex assigned at birth, there's the phrase again, physical attraction, and emotional attraction. Children are taught through this colorful graphic of the gender unicorn that their mind and body, their entire person, is fragmented. It gives the message, according to Dr. Piercy, that a human being is composed of disparate bits and pieces. And not only in this worldview are body and soul separated, but the body is seen as incidental and the inner being is seen as the true self. You heard that in the quote from Bruce Jenner early in the message. Now I've finally discovered my true self because of a vague inner feeling that that completely ignores what the body indicates. Number three, transgenderism manipulates language. Transgenderism manipulates language. Language is not seen as a vehicle whereby truth can be expressed and clear communication can happen between individuals. It is seen as a means of power and manipulation. And perhaps the most notorious example of this is the promoting of preferred pronouns according to one's gender identity, not according to their birth sex necessarily. And so you may see in someone's social media bio their preferred pronouns that they would like you to use in interactions with them. In some classrooms, students are encouraged to ask one another, what is your preferred pronoun that you would like me to use? Even in the workplace, this is often promoted. And these pronouns are not limited to he, him, or she, her, or even the more generic they, them, but also ze, here, she, Zir, A-M, Z, Zem, and more. Now, it's difficult to keep up with the expanding list of pronouns, but the list of terms denoting sexual identity and gender expression is far more extensive. In 2014, two individuals named Holiday Simmons and Fresh White expanded the LGBT acronym to 13 letters, LGBT, T2QQAAIIP, which stand for Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Transsexual, Two-Spirit, Queer, Questioning, Asexual, Allies, Intersex, Intergender, and Pansexual. Two years later, in 2016, the New York City Human Rights Commission expanded the list to 31 terms of gender expression, And not to be outdone, Facebook lists over 50 possible gender identities. Now, here's here's the reality. If you refer to a man as a woman or a woman as a man, you are participating in a lie. That's what you're doing. But transgenderism activists demand verbal affirmation of one's chosen pronouns and identity. For example, New York City employers may be fined if they refuse to use their employees' chosen pronouns and identities. Some have even gone so far as to call the intentional misgendering of a transgender-identified person as an act of violence, an act of linguistic violence. This is how some will describe it. Perhaps worst of all when it comes to the worldview of transgenderism and its consequences, number four is that transgenderism regularly undercuts the family and abuses children. Transgenderism activists are willing to disrupt otherwise healthy families and experiment on confused children. Were you aware that children may be given puberty blockers around age 10? And that this sometimes can happen without parental knowledge. Parents, I want you to be aware of these things for your children. This is despite the fact that there are clear health risks associated with puberty blockers and, again, little evidence of psychological benefit in the long run. In fact, minors who are given puberty blockers and hormone treatments often end up with great regret and resentment of those who allowed such things in their young lives. Why? Because 80 to 90% of children who experience gender dysphoria do not carry these feelings into adulthood. That's a really, really important thing to know if you care about children. 80 to 90% of children, some would put the number even higher, who experience gender dysphoria in their young years do not carry these feelings into adulthood. This is according to the American College of Pediatricians. But these facts do not stop activists from mistreating children and disturbing the families who are opposed to such treatments. Consider the case of a Texas father named Jeffrey Younger who for years has been fighting for his son not to receive puberty blockers. The boy's mother insists that he is a girl. Now the odds, unfortunately, are against this father and his son because social workers are often trained to see parents who have a traditional worldview as a suicide risk for trans minors. This is literally what is being taught in many areas. I don't mean to cast dispersion on every social worker, but this is often what is taught. That if a young person has a parent with a traditional worldview, that is, that if you're born male, you should identify as male and grow up to be a man, and that if you're born female, you should identify as female and grow up to be a woman, that's a traditional worldview that is seen as harmful for a trans child, and because of this perceived threat to life and well-being, DHS workers actually have the ability to remove a trans child from what they deem to be an unsupportive home. Imagine the heartbreak of parents in this situation. Well, enough about the ideology of transgenderism and its consequences. The main reason to reject transgenderism is not because It seems problematic, but ultimately because it is blatant rebellion against God's good design for our bodies as seen in scripture, which means that ultimately encouraging this worldview is bad for people. I want us to see what is the biblical theology of gender, and I'd like us to begin in Genesis chapter 1. We looked at this chapter last week, and I'll ask you to turn there once again. Genesis chapter 1, the very first book of the Bible. See, there is good news for all of us when we come to know our designer and know that he has given us his word to guide our lives. The concept of intentionality in how we were made and how God has set up our lives is very, very important and very freeing for those who come to know their Lord. Tom Gilson writes about this. He says, human nature is nothing other than what God has made it to be. God had a specific purpose for humans in mind, and we can either fulfill or deny that purpose. In fact, to deny our nature and purpose is to struggle not just against ourselves or each other, but against reality itself. But in the end, reality must always win, which is to say, God himself wins and the reality deniers lose. Those who align their lives with reality, on the other hand, share the joy of God's victory in it. Now again, I encourage us as we go to Scripture to walk the road of truth and grace. Our hearts should be moved with compassion for those who genuinely wrestle with gender dysphoria. But we're not called to affirm them in their confusion. We're called to love them despite their confusion. And to bring God's word to them, which properly accounts for everything that is right with us and everything that is wrong with us. I want us to see in Scripture that mankind is made in God's image, male and female. We looked at these verses last week. Let's look at them once again, Genesis 1:26, where God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 26 says, We're made in God's image, and it says that we were created in God's image and likeness for a purpose, to be God's ruling stewards over the rest of earthly creation. Again, it's good news to know what our purpose and calling is. But again, I quote Nancy Piercy, who notes that those influenced by transgenderism and similar agendas think their body is just a piece of matter that gives no clues about who they are as persons. They think their identity as male or female has no special dignity or meaning. They view their body negatively as a limitation on their authentic identity. By contrast, how can we present the biblical view as anything but radically positive and affirming? Christianity gives the basis for a high and humane view of the person as an integrated whole. I don't like when my body seems to betray me and work against me. Have you ever been chewing on some food and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, You're in a perfectly good mood, enjoying your food, and you bite down on the inside of your mouth. I tell you, that is one of the most annoying feelings in the world. That will put me from a great mood to a terrible mood instantly. Here I am just doing this thing I'm supposed to do to survive, eat food, and my body is betraying me. My teeth are chewing the inside of my mouth. And, of course, when you do it once, then it starts swelling, and then you're ten times more likely to do it again within the next five minutes. I'm glad, though, that on the whole, God has created my mind and body to be in sync so that as I serve him as one created in his image and given a task to represent him well, he has given me inner being and an outer being that are designed to work in harmony for that end. And that includes whether I am male or female. Verse 27, which says, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. No matter how much someone may disparage what they will call the gender binary, here it is in the 27th verse of the entire Bible. Male and female, he created them. This is a highly significant scripture for a theology of gender. It affirms, according to Alan Branch, that sexuality is not an accident of nature, nor is it simply a biological phenomenon. Instead, sexual identity and function are part of God's will for his image bearers. There's no place in God's design for someone to think of their sex and their gender as mismatching. In fact, you can see this if you trace chapter 1 into chapter 2, where in chapter 1 we read of male and female, and then in Genesis 2 we read of man and woman. This is because, and I quote Robert Smith, a person's biological sex reveals and determines both their objective gender and certain key gender roles should they be taken up. That is, human males grow into men and human females grow into women. I also want to quote Denny Burke who writes, God created sexual differentiation. The terms male and female are not cultural constructs. They are not social roles foisted upon mankind by the accretion of culture and tradition. Male and female designate the fundamental distinction that God has embedded in the very biology of the race. Men and women are created different. The differences are real, they are intentional, and they are good. They are good. And this is an objective, firm foundation on which to base one's identity. The body that God gave you, whether male or female, is a significant part of who you are. It is not an accident. And I will never encourage someone to disconnect their mental desires from their physical design. Why should we derive our sexual identity from subjective feelings rather than objective anatomy? Genesis 1 and 2 is not the only section of Scripture to emphasize the God-designed gender binary. In fact, Vaughan Roberts states the fact of the creation of human beings as male and female is woven deep into the fabric of the Bible's story and therefore into the understanding of the world and ourselves that Christians embrace. For example, last week we looked at Ephesians 5, which shows that marital sex distinctions point to the drama of redemption. Christ's love for his bride, the church, and the church's love in return. That beautiful picture of the gospel is made possible because of the fundamental distinction between men and women. 1 Corinthians 11 says nature itself teaches that there are even physical distinctions between men and women. So we should not be surprised to find that in both Old and New Testaments, there are multiple passages Theologian Wayne Grudem lists at least 13 passages that assume that someone is either a man or woman and that society regularly will be able to know the difference between them. Now, this does not mean that every man and every woman needs to fit every cultural stereotype, but it does mean that each ought to embrace their God-given gender role and reflect it to some extent in their appearance. We're made in God's image as male or female, but we understand there was something that happened in Genesis 3, the fall of mankind into sin, and the subsequent curse. Last week, we read the scriptures. Not long after they were created, the first man and woman rebelled against God, and there were subsequent divine curses that were appropriate for each sex. You can read in Genesis 3, 16, and 17 that the woman's good calling of childbearing would be made painful and the man's good calling of labor would be made painful. And all of creation suffers under this curse. We live in a good but painful world that is tangled with thorns and thistles everywhere. And sin affects all of us at every level, our thoughts, our words, our our actions, and even our deepest desires and identities. But despite this, there is no justifiable reason to separate the sex with which you were born and the gender identity that you should carry. Robert Smith writes, there is no reason, either biblical or scientific, to believe that a person can have either the brain or soul of one sex and the body of the other. It may be a person's strong feeling or deeply held conviction, but it is not an objective fact. As one of the tragic effects of the fall, the gender dysphoric person is suffering from a pathology of the mind. And this is why identifying as anything other than one's birth gender is always discouraged in Scripture. Why? Because you do have a sex assigned at birth, and God is the one who lovingly assigned it. I ask you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 22. This is the fifth book of Scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 22 in which we find instructions given to the people of Israel, God giving these instructions from a heart of love for his people and a desire for their good. Deuteronomy 22.5 gives us a reference to a human behavior that is often, not always, but often linked to transgenderism and that is cross-dressing. Deuteronomy 22, five says a woman shall not wear a man's garment nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now some people will read this and say well this is the Old Testament law. We're not bound to it. It doesn't apply to us. Well I hope we understand that the Old Testament law even though technically we're not under that covenant it still reveals to us something of the heart and purposes of God. Can we agree with that? And even though this is in the context of Old Testament law, Jason Derushi clarifies that there is an enduring principle in this divine prohibition, that loving others and God means that people will maintain a gender identity that aligns with their biological sex and will express this gender in a way that never leads to gender confusion in the eyes of others. We're so thankful for Jesus, aren't we? Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have, in some way or another, twisted and perverted God's intention for us. And yet, God is so gracious that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to walk among us, to be for us the best example that we could possibly imagine of grace and truth and glory. He is God in human flesh. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. It's significant, by the way, that Jesus Christ, God's only divine son, was born in human flesh. Contrary to Gnostic philosophies that would demean the body, the Christian faith affirms that in Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And Jesus personally affirmed the integration of body and soul, and he personally affirmed the God-designed gender binary. Notice in Matthew 19, verse 4, in context of a question about marriage and divorce, Jesus says in verse 4, Have you not read, and he's referring to Genesis here, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? If it's not hateful for Jesus to say that, it's not hateful for us to say that. There is a gender binary. Jesus affirmed it. Jesus not only affirmed the truth, but he came to bring grace. And again, I'm so thankful for this. He laid down his life for those who have lived a lie in all kinds of ways. He died for every kind of sinner. And again, I ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians 6. We looked at this passage last week. 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, this is the sixth book of, I'm sorry, the seventh book of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, written by the Apostle Paul. And chapter 6 gives us such an encouraging word of gospel truth. We read it last week, but I want to read it again that no type of sinner is beyond the reach of his grace. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, Paul the Apostle confirmed the grave consequences of various unrepentant sins. He says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, who among us has not been guilty of some of these sins? But in verse 11, there is the glorious good news of the life-changing power of the gospel. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you, but this is no longer your identity. You're no longer bound to this. In Christ, the chains of sin are broken, and the believer's identity is transformed completely. This is a gospel of grace, and it's also a gospel of growth. A gospel of growth, even though we know we will not attain perfection this side of eternity, we can have real and genuine growth in grace as God reveals to us his will for us and as the Spirit leads us on the road of repentance and sanctification and growth. There are implications now as Christians for every part of us, including our bodies. Notice in this same chapter down in verse 19, that Paul goes on to write, verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Oh, if everyone in the world would embrace this phrase, you are not your own. But if you're a Christian, you were bought with a price. So glorify God in every way, including in your body. I mentioned Gnosticism earlier. These people who went around saying, well, my inner being is good, my outer being is bad, and you want to know the way that some of them lived this out? They would go and sin with impunity with their bodies and use the logic well my body is bad anyway it's going to do what it's going to do but with my inner self i'm going to worship god now those were the ancient gnostics but is that a familiar mindset in our day i'm going to go ahead and use my body however but i'm still going to be worshiping god in my inner spirit that's not how it works We're called to glorify God with our bodies. And one way to glorify God with your body is with gender-appropriate physical presentation because we want to reflect the goodness of God's creation created in God's image as male or female. You say, well, Mike, what if my mind and body just don't seem to match? I invite you to turn to one last passage, Colossians chapter 3. What if my mind and body do not seem to match? I was actually reading someone who ident- identifies as transgender and also uh, claims to be a believer. And they said, I recognize that it's because of sin that my, my gender identity and my birth sex do not match. But what I've done is I've simply sided with my mind and I'm changing my body to match my mind. So is that a legitimate way for a believer to respond to gender dysphoria? Well, I don't believe so because the Bible consistently presents sanctification as a transformation not by the renewal of the body, but by the renewal of your mind. If there's a disconnect, it is your mind that needs to change. It is your mind that needs to be renewed based on who you know yourself to be in Christ. These verses were read earlier in our service, and let's read them again. Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, and if you're a believer, you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life, Christ is your life. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So identifying as being in Christ, what are we to do? Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. For example, sexual immorality. And by the way, that means all kinds of sexual immorality. Amen? Amen? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, Transgenderism would have people desire a body that is not theirs. The Bible calls that covetousness, which is idolatry. And we're called to put that to death. On account of these things the wrath of God is coming. Verse 7, in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Again, I hope we're all feeling convicted, and not just pointing the finger at other kinds of sinners. But again, notice verse nine, do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Do not lie to one another. Transgenderism would have us to say that you should should present yourself as a sex that is not yours. The Bible calls that deception. And Scripture says to put off lies. In verse 10, you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge After the image of its creator. See, transgender identity and behavior is simply not in line with biblical ethics. God loves his children too much to encourage us to lead lives of harmful fantasy. As believers, no matter what our sin struggles and temptations are, we're called to persevere in hope of a future glorified body, untainted by sin's curse, in which there will be no disconnect between inner feelings and outer reality. I look forward to that day, don't you? Well, what about our neighbors, our loved ones who identify as transgender How are we to relate to them? How are we to speak with them? Well, as I stated earlier, the transgender conversation is not really mainly about issues. It's mainly about people. And the fact is that our neighbors who identify as transgender tend to be deeply troubled in a number of ways. Many have a background of abuse, trauma, mental disorder, loss, or family dysfunction, and, of course, the greatest problem, sin. And like Jesus, Christians should be moved with compassion for the harassed and the helpless. Not to stiff arm, but to move toward them with grace and with truth. If you don't reach them with the gospel, who will? It's okay to hate the lies of transgender ideology. I hate the lies of transgender ideology. But we can hate the lie while loving the deceived and loving the confused and moving toward them as those who are harassed and helpless, loving them as Jesus would, loving them enough to speak the truth that can set them.